0: The text for this morning's sermon is 1 Samuel 28. If you want to turn there, 1 Samuel 28, 1 through 25. I'll be reading 1 Peter three seventeen and 18. Verse 17 of 1 Peter 3. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For if Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Let's pray. Father, as we come before You now and look into Your Word, God, I pray You give us wisdom, that Your Word would impart wisdom to us. Lord, I pray that You would help our hearts feel, that You would work repentance in our own hearts as we see ourselves and Saul in so many different ways. Father, I pray, Lord, that you would grant us repentance. Lord, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever had someone give you the silent treatment before? I'm sure you've given the silent treatment to someone else. We're tempted to do this when we're angry with someone, uh, it's pretty easy to do to someone. And it's really frustrating when someone is giving us the silent treatment. I'll never forget in my biblical counseling class, the professor said basically the silent treatment is like saying you're dead to me. It's like you're not even alive. Like I don't even care. I remember that hitting me pretty hard and thinking, no wonder it feels so bad when someone acts in this way. I don't think anybody enjoys it. I think deeply rooted inside every human heart is a fear of abandonment. And one of the most convincing reasons I say that I mean, maybe my four daughters aren't the pool of all humanity. But for reasons that Laura and I have never been able to figure out, our girls seem to think that at any moment we might abandon them. I mean, we'll be upstairs and we'll walk downstairs. And a few minutes later, one of our girls is running down saying, You didn't tell me you were going downstairs how dare you leave me up here alone? <laughs> to which we usually say, when have we ever left you? When have we ever conspired a plan to l- take off and leave you alone? Just like you don't need to teach a child to sin or to lie, I don't think you need to teach a human heart to have the fear of abandonment I think all of us know that nothing could be more hurtful than for ones with whom which we cared about would one day leave us. Well, this text, I think, is one of the saddest chapters in the Bible. The title of the sermon is God's Horrid, Silent Abandonment. And as I poured myself over this text, I just couldn't think of worse circumstances in the world. I think there's so much we can learn from this text. Now, it's been a couple of weeks since we've been in First Samuel, Samuel, if you remember in chapter 27, David fled Israel into Philistine territory and is basically pretending to be on the Philistine side. He's fooled Achish. As David's making raids against these uh, uh, other raiders, he's convincing Achish that he's actually making these raids against Israel. And Achish thinks, perfect! David has made himself a stench to the people of Israel. He is surely faithful to me. Now, if you look at verse 1, we kind of have an interruption. It's like in a show, as a story as a show you're watching is going on, there's kind of breaking news. That's kind of what chapter 28 is in in this long drama of David fleeing from Saul. And and look at verse 1. In those days, the Philistines gathered their forces for war to fight against Israel. And Achish said to David... Understand that you and your men are to go out with me in the army. David said to Akish, very well. You know, you shall know what your servant can do. It's kind of an ambiguous statement there. And Akish said to David, very well. I'll make you my bodyguard for life. Now, this is a horrible situation David's in. It's like it keeps going from bad to worse. So he's been hiding out in the Philistine territory down by Ziklag. He's been hiding out there, but now Achish wants to strike Israel. Not just a little border skirmish, but a decisive blow. And he comes to David and he says, let's go. Let's go beat him. You're not going to fight from afar. You're going to be my bodyguard." And so you see this horrible horrible position David is in. What is he going to do? How is he going to get out of this one? If he doesn't fight with the Philistines, then they're going to kill him and his 600 men. But will he actually go and fight against his own people Israel? Be on par with Saul as Saul slayed the priest at Nob? Is David also... Gonna strike God's people? So it's like the climax in the story begins to peak. And we're reminded in verse three now Samuel had died, and all Israel had mourned for him and buried him in Ramah, his own city. Now, we were already told in chapter 25 that Samuel was dead, but it's, it's like a, break in the story. There's breaking news. In fact, chapter 27 and 29 go together chronologically. Chapter 28 happens after chapter 29. And so we need to ask ourselves, what is the writer trying to point out to us in inserting this breaking news? So... Let me show you a map here so you can see what's going on and try to picture this in your mind. Um, First I'll read, uh, you can keep the map up. In verse 4 it says, The Philistines assembled and came and encamped at Shunem. And Saul gathered all Israel and they encamped at Gilboa. When Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was terrified, and his heart trembled greatly. So here's what you have. Uh, You have the Philistines that live in all these cities here. You have David here in Ziklag, and they're all gathering up north for battle. The Philistines are up at Shunem, up at the very top. Endor is even north of that. And you have Saul beginning... Uh, to go up on Mount Gilboa, and Saul's with his army, and he's up on a high point, and he sees Israel, or, or he sees the Philistines all gathering. He realizes that sure destruction is awaiting him. Uh, there's the Valley of Jezreel up there. That is one of the most important valleys to have control of. If the Philistines can take control of this valley, He's going to cut off the northern part of Israel from the southern, and it's one of the main trade routes. And and so this isn't just a little border skirmish. This is like the big battle. And the reason why we know that chapter 28 happens after chapter 29 is because in chapter 29, the Philistine army is only right here. in Israel is down in the valley and they're not on top of the mountain. So geography tells us uh, the chronological order. We're going to look later in the sermon at, at the significance of why this breaking news in the midst of, of this drama. So you can kind of picture the geography there. And, and look at verse 5. When Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid his heart trembled greatly. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him. We've just been told that Samuel is dead. The prophet that spoke God's Word to Saul is dead. Saul is so desperate, he inquires of the Lord. The Lord didn't answer him. In a sense he's getting the silent treatment either by dreams or by Urim or by prophets. These are all acceptable ways to hear from the Lord. This is the way that uh the kings of Israel had gotten guidance before, but in he was getting no dreams through the priests uh Way of asking God through the Urim, he wasn't getting any guidance that way. There was no prophet talking to him. And we read, then Saul saw, said to his servants, "Seek out for me a woman who is a medium, that I may go to her and inquire of her." And his servants and his servants said to him, "Behold, there is a medium in Endor." Now, we're going to talk more about what a medium is uh, in in a moment. But you see the desperation of Saul. I tried to come talk to God God's way. Now, bring me a witch. Bring me a medium. I'm going to hear from God. And so verse 8 says, So Saul disguised himself and put on other garments and went and went. He went two men with him. They came to the woman by night. So here's the king of Israel in a disguise sneaking around at night. Now, if you remember on that map, the Philistines are in Shunem and Endor is north of that. So he has to sneak around the Philistine army to get to this witch. I mean, this is dedication. This is desperation would be a better way of thinking of it. And he said to the woman, divine for me by spirit and bring up for me whomever I shall name to you. The woman said to him, surely you know what Saul has done, how he has cut off the mediums and the necromancers from the land. Why then are you laying a trap for my life to bring about my death? But Saul swore to her by the Lord, that's ironic, as the Lord lives, No punishment shall come upon you for this thing. So here's what's happened. Saul has been a faithful king in the fact that he's driven all the mediums and necromancers out of Israel according to the law. Leviticus 19.31 says this, Do not turn to mediums or necromancers. Do not seek them out and so make yourselves unclean by them I am the Lord God. In Deuteronomy eighteen nine, we read this: When you come into the land that the Lord your God has given you, you shall not learn to follow the abominable practices of those nations. Anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens or a sorcerer or A charmer, or a medium, or a necromancer, or one who inquires of the dead, for whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. And because these abominations, the Lord your God, and because of these abominations, the Lord your God is driving them out out before you. You shall be blameless before the Lord your God, for these nations which you are about to dispossess, listen to fortune tellers, and to diviners. But as for you, the Lord your God has not allowed you to do this. So Saul has rightly driven out the fortune tellers out of Israel. But evidently, the Israelites know where to find one when they need one. His servants knew where to go. They knew that there was this lady in Endor. I just want to read one more uh, text on on uh, mediums and, and necromancers from Isaiah, just so we kind of feel how God feels towards this action. And so in Isaiah 8, right after Isaiah has said that this people is going to stumble over the stumbling block, the offense, it's looking forward to Christ, then he says this, And when they say to you, so these people who stumble, inquire of mediums and necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? So he says, when people tell you, go listen to this chirping and muttering, should not rather people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? You see how foolish that is? Shall the living really go seek wisdom from the dead? But then he says this, to the teaching and to the testimony, if they will not speak according to this Word, God's Word, it is because they have no dawn. There's been no light that's shown into their soul. Someone who's going to go hear from a fortune teller rather than inquire from God gives proof that there's been no dawn in their soul. It's such a vivid picture. And then Isaiah says this, "...they will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry, and when they are hungry, they will be enraged and speak contemptuously against their King and their God and turn their faces upward." shaking their finger at God, and they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, gloom and anguish, and they'll be thrust into thick darkness. This is Saul's position. God isn't answering him. In a sense, he's looked up, and now he's looking down to the earth. He's looking down to the dead. He's looking to find hope In the midst of hopelessness. And we read on in verse 11 the woman said to him, Whom shall I bring up for you? He said, Bring up Samuel for me. I think Saul must have been hoping. You know, Samuel's the one that's cursed his kingdom. Through Samuel's voice, God told Saul that his kingdom would be ripped out for him so it makes sense. Maybe he can call Samuel back up and reverse this word that's been spoken through the prophet of the Lord. And we read in verse 12, when the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice, And the woman said to Saul, Why have you deceived me? You are Saul. Now we don't know. There's there's a lot of questions you're going to want to ask me about this event. And I'm not saying I have all the answers for you when you have a witch raising up Samuel from the dead. But the first thing we noticed is when Samuel started coming up, she was freaked out. Maybe she was surprised because it was actually working and she was using fakery before. That's one option. Even though God never says don't go to a necromancer because they're ineffective, He says don't go there because they're evil. So, she's... Freaked out, she also could be freaked out because the text says she realizes this is Saul. It seems like a trap. She's about to do something that Saul has made illegal and she's sure that she's going to die now. Now we don't know why she saw through his disguise as soon as she saw Samuel. Maybe Samuel came up and called Saul by name and she realized. These are answers that uh, we can't know for... Sure on, or questions we don't have answers for for sure, but what we do see is she recognized his disguise and she was fearful. The king said to her, verse 13, do not be afraid. What do you see? The woman said to Saul, I see a God coming up out of the earth. He said to her, what is his appearance? And she said, an old man is coming up and he is wrapped in a robe probably a robe like a prophet. It was recognizable to her. And Saul knew that it was Samuel, and he bowed his face to the ground and paid homage. Uh, Just a couple side notes here because I know how curiosity goes. So, So why is God willing to work through this woman? Well, first thing is we know God thinks it's evil to ever go to a medium or to a fortune teller. Scripture is totally clear in that. But it seems like God is willing to work through even the evil actions of his people to speak truth to them. And ultimately, what's his point? Saul's going to this medium. And as we're going to see in a moment, he ends up dead the next day. Doesn't work out too good. For him, he doesn't get real great news. Uh, but look at verse fifteen. Then Samuel said to Saul, "Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up?" Saul answered, "I am in great distress, for the Philistines are warring against me, and God has turned away from me and answers me no more." Now, if I were you, I would underline that statement because I want you to think about it. God has turned away from me and answers me no more. There isn't a sadder statement in the Bible than that. There is no darker day than the day when God no longer speaks to you and has left you. And so Saul is experiencing this. He says, Therefore, God has turned away from me. He answers me no more, neither by prophets nor by dreams. Therefore, I've summoned you to tell me what I shall do. You see, he wants a word from the Lord. And Samuel said, Why do you, why do you ask me, since the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy? The Lord has done to you as he spoke by me, for the Lord has tore the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor David. Now he tells them specifically it is in fact David who's taking over your kingdom. Because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek, therefore the Lord has done this thing to you this day. You see, God is not giving him another word. He's giving him the exact same word he got before. Samuel doesn't give him anything. God is silent other than saying it's just as devastating as you think it is. I have torn the kingdom from you. If you remember, he he made an unlawful sacrifice. Uh, he, He didn't follow according to God's Word and wait for Samuel to offer a sacrifice as he saw the Philistines coming. And then he also didn't carry out God's wrath against Amalek when he was supposed to destroy all living things. He left their king alive. He left the animals alive. I love one commentator, MacArthur. He says this, Democracy is no more acceptable replacement for, for a prophetic theocracy than a monarchy. You see, here's what, here's what Saul did. He says, well, I'm the king, I'll offer up the sacrifice. No, that's evil. The king of Israel needs to listen to the prophet. The king can't replace the prophet. And then what did he say when he didn't destroy Amalek? He said, well, all the people told me to keep them alive so we can offer sacrifice. And what this commentator is saying is, even if a democracy, even if all the people say, this is what we think is right, you still have to go according to God's Word. The people don't usurp the prophetic Word of God. You see, the majority of people can't decide what marriage is when God's already told us, what marriage is. So that would be an example of of how this played out in our day. But long story short, Saul's failure is he didn't listen to God's Word. And then in verse 19, here's the result. Moreover, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines, and tomorrow you and your sons shall be with me. The Lord will give the army of Israel also into the hand of the Philistines. Now I know what you're thinking. So Saul's going to heaven to be where Samuel is? No, Saul's going to Sheol, which is the place where both the saved and the unsaved are until Christ comes. And he's saying tomorrow you're going to be in the nether world. You're going to be in the world of the dead. Not only is God not talking to you, He has abandoned you, and tomorrow you'll be dead. And, the, and then in verse 21, and the woman came to Saul. She saw that he was terrified and said to him, Behold, your servant has obeyed you. I have taken my life in my hand and listened to what you have said to me. Now therefore, you also shall obey your servant. Now you might read this and not think much about it, but this is covenant language. She's saying, I've obeyed you, now you obey me. Get up off the ground and eat. It's ironic. The day before Saul dies, he's rejected the covenant with Yahweh, with God, And he's making a covenant with a witch. It's one of the saddest stories you could ever see. Now, therefore, also obey your servant, she says. Let me set a morsel of bread before you and eat that you may have strength when you go on your way. You see, in dire circumstances, you kind of lose your appetite. You don't feel like eating. This is where Saul is. He refused and said, I will not eat, but his servants together with the woman urged him and he listened to their words. So he arose from the earth and sat on the bed. Now the woman had fattened a calf in the house and she quickly killed it and she took flour and kneaded it and baked an unleavened bread or baked unleavened bread of it. This is the type of meal you'd prepare for a king. And she put it before Saul and his servants and they ate. And they rose and went away that night." So Saul eats his last meal as a king. See, that steak didn't taste quite as good as it tasted before. He didn't really feel like eating. So what can we gain from this text? What can we learn from this text I'm going to give you four things number one humble yourself in God's presence for Saul here's the rule he lived by my kingdom come my will be done no matter what you see as God was working to make his kingdom great he was excited But when God said something that he didn't like, he went his own way. He became a pragmatist. You see, it was Saul's kingdom at all cost. Uh, We saw that in verses 5 and 7. You know, he tried to inquire the Lord God's way, but it didn't work your way, so now I'm going to do it my way. You see... He was so hellbound after His kingdom that there was no stopping Him no matter what. And I just want you to know that I can relate to this. I can relate to so having my kingdom so locked in that no matter what circumstances come that would seem to be pointing towards this isn't the Lord's will, I am capable of pressing right through those and say, no, I'm going to get my way. I'm going to give you an example that is very tough for me to give you. I want you to know, I want you to picture what this is for you. Uh, Most of you know that one of the hobbies I enjoy doing is bow hunting. One of my favorite things is when a couple of my buddies would come from Minnesota and spend a week, and I'd get to hunt with them. And uh, several years back, they were scheduled to come, and I got a call from my brother in law, Steve. Laura did that their baby boy was injured by their daycare der- provider this is henry i get this call the day before my buddy's coming and they said he's in serious condition they don't they, they don't know how it's going to be you want to know how sick my heart was set on my kingdom. I'm feeling sorry for myself. But we went down to Sioux Falls. I looked at little Henry laying there, his brain swelling. They don't know if he's going to live. And I was so disgusted with the ugliness of my heart. Every time I see Henry I know God's forgiven me, but I'm reminded how absolutely horrid it is when we press after our kingdom, no matter what. Rather than look at what God's will is, ask God, are you willing for God to change your plans? Humble yourself in the presence of God. Second, glory in God's presence. The most hopeless misery is to be abandoned by God. Basically, Saul was told because you didn't listen to God, Yahweh has is done with you. He's left you. That's the explanation for Yahweh's absence when Saul's calling out to him. Let me read to you what uh, one commentator says. He says, The text is not gentle, but it's clear. If you despise God's word, he will take it from you. If you persistently refuse to obey God's speech, you will endure God's silence. How crucial then are one's first responses to the gospel? To the initial call to enter the kingdom of God. And then he gives this example from Spurgeon. Spurgeon tells of a man on his deathbed who sent for him. In his lifetime, the man had jeered at Spurgeon, had often denounced him as a hypocrite. Now in desperation and now in desperation and death, he called for him. Of this instance and of this man, Spurgeon wrote this, He had, when in health, wickedly refused Christ, yet in his death agony he had superstitiously sent for me. Too late. He sighed for the ministry of reconciliation and sought to enter at a closed door, but he was not able. There was no space left then for repentance for he had wasted the opportunities which God had long granted him. And then here's what the commentator says. What could be worse, to know you need to repent and can't, is horridly solemn. The most hopeless misery in all of life is to be abandoned by God. So there's a warning here. When you hear God's Word, Submit to God's Word. Saul, all the way up to the last moment of his life, was unwilling to admit God's Word was true. To truly repent. In these last moments where it looked like death was sure, what did he want? He wanted victory in a war. How foolish of him. So, Glory in your opportunity to trust Christ. Repent while you can repent. There's nothing better than knowing that you can have the ear of the Lord, the Word of the Lord, and His presence in your life. Repent for it leads to God's presence. That's the third point. You see, Saul was seeking not for God's forgiveness, but for help in defeating the Philistines. He didn't realize what his biggest enemy was, did he? So he's looking at the Philistines. He's saying, I need God, I need God, I need God. He didn't realize that he was an enemy of God because he had rejected God's Word. What should have Saul done? Saul should have cried out to the Lord and said, I've sinned against you. I've rebelled against your word. I'm no longer to be your king. Praise God, raise David up. Someone more worthy. This is the prayer he should have been making. He should have been repenting because if he would have repented, God forgives those who repent Admit their sin, call their sin what it is. But he refused to do that. Instead, what does he do? He calls Samuel up from the dead. Now tell me something. What can Samuel do for him? Samuel's raised up from the dead. He can't do one thing for Saul. Saul. Saul needed to be looking for another one. Jesus Christ, when he was raised up from the dead, he didn't, he wasn't just able to speak judgment. Now he was able to speak peace to his people. Saul could not see this mercy that was in the heart of God. His repentance did not come to him. He rejected for so long, his heart was so hard, he's going to die apart from the presence of God. I wonder if you know the privilege of sitting here today. You're sitting here today with the mercy seat open to you, with the presence of God offered to you. For those of you who are Christians, you get reassured that you'll never be abandoned by God. Romans two four. do you presume upon the riches of his kindness and forbearance, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? You see the fact that Saul retained his kingship for a while and he wasn't struck dead? He didn't realize God was being kind to him, giving him an opportunity to repent. So many people are out there saying, God's not upset with me, everything's gone good so far. It's meant to Leave time for repentance. In Acts 11.18, Peter says, when they heard these things, they fell silent after he preached the Gospel and they glorified God, saying to the Gentiles also that God has granted repentance that leads to life. One of the most shocking things when Jesus Christ came is that repentance was not only granted to Israel, but to the Gentiles, the great privilege of repentance. Acts 5.30, The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging on a tree. God exalted Him at His right hand as leader and Savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. As Jesus died on the cross, He can give a gift of repentance. 2 Timothy 2.24, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. Why? God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of truth, that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. I hope you feel the privilege to be able to believe in Christ, the one who was rejected in your place. I mean, you want to know how bad being abandoned by God was? Why did Jesus say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You and I have never been alone in our lives. We've never been truly alone with no one. When Jesus was... On the cross, and his disciples fled, and the sins, my sins and your sins, were on Christ. The fierce wrath of God came upon Jesus. Remember, remember Samuel said to Saul, Because you didn't carry out the fierce wrath of God against Amalek. You see, there's a fierce wrath, and when Jesus Christ took your sins, He experienced God's face turning away from Him under the punishment for sins. Jesus Christ was abandoned by God in that moment. No death couldn't keep Him. Yes, the Father raised Him up, but He really drank down Yours and mine, eternal hell, separation from God forever. Do you realize the privilege of not being abandoned by God in Christ taking your place on that cross? Which leads into this last point. I just want you to consider, we need to think about this while we're still sucking air. There's countless billions that will never have a chance to repent. Billions. And you're here so privileged knowing that God's mercy is opened to you and to I. Last point, gain proper perspective in light of the fact that we can live in God's presence and never have Him be silent to us or abandon us. Remember when we said that this story was interrupted, David's story? Why is it interrupted? At the end of chapter 27 and the first couple verses in this chapter, you can't hardly imagine a scenario worse than the one David's in right now. You can almost not imagine anything worse, but it's almost like God says, you want to see what bad is? You want to see a breaking news, what it looks like? David, yes, while he's running for his life, yes, while he's in the predicament he's in, he is not abandoned by God. As you deal with the struggles in your life, the things that seem unfair, the pain, the relational pain, your boss at work, whatever. Whatever you plug in to say, this is as bad as it gets, I think what we're supposed to learn from this text is no, it's not. If I know I'm not abandoned by God and there's grace for me, then I can have strength to get through no matter what comes. Because we're going to find out you know what's coming for David? His wives and children are going to be captured. It seems seemingly gets worse, but the Lord is with him. So what I hope you take and what I hope I learn is to understand the privilege to know the text that Scott read, that Jesus Christ died that He might bring us to God. What makes heaven heaven is the fact that God's there, that He has not abandoned His those who will trust in Him, that not only has He not abandoned them, He invites them into His presence, into the center of this Trinitarian family. We're called His children, that we get to live with Him forever my prayer is that if you're a christian you leave here more thankful for the fact that you are not abandoned by god and you're also reminded the danger the danger of knowing god's word and rebelling and rebelling and rebelling and if you're not a believer i just hope you realize the opportunity that you can repent that you can recognize the selfishness of your own kingdom and say, Lord, Thine kingdom come. Thy will be done. Father, I pray You would help both those here who are saved and unsaved be able to say those words. That someone for the very first time might be willing to finally give up realizing that it's just darkness and gloom and hunger and thirsting at the end of this road of living according to our kingdom. Father, I pray that You would grant us repentance, that You would heal our hearts, that You would begin to mold us into the image of God, that You would begin to destroy the type of selfishness that I experienced in my life, Father, Continue that. I pray this for all of us. In Jesus' name, Amen.